Hey everyone, this is a joint stream bringing together uh, Multipolarista, The Left Lens, and Friends of Socialist China. I'm Ben Norton. It's always a real pleasure speaking with two of my close friends and two guys I admire a lot, Carlos Martinez of Friends of Socialist China and Denny Haifang of The Left Lens. So, you know, uh, we're all streaming this on our channel separately. You should follow all of our channels. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the latest developments in China. This is part of a semi-regular segment that we do. This is actually our second segment. Um, we were thinking of doing it every month. It didn't really work out every month, but we're going to do it regularly, where the three of us team up, mostly to talk about geopolitics, especially China. Because a lot of the coverage of China, even in alternative media outlets, is sometimes um, somewhat superficial. And we wanted to, to focus today on a few important issues and provide important geopolitical and economic analysis to understand some significant changes that are happening in China, around the world, in the global balance of power. So today we're going to talk first about the protests that were happening in China. There was a lot of hyperbolic media coverage about these protests. You know, some people like Gordon Chang, who he, every year he predicts this is the end of China. You know, he and media outlets were saying that, you know, Xi Jinping is being threatened by these protests that are going to overthrow the Communist Party. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But what's interesting is there were protests, partially protests against the, some of the um, COVID restrictions. And in response to those protests, the government has partially modified some of its policies and seems to be moving away from the zero COVID policy, which is in quite interesting because we're constantly told in Western media that China is this horrible authoritarian dictatorship yet it is quite responsive to the demands of people, of its people when they protest, which seems to me to me like a real definition of a democracy. Whereas in the US, you know, in 2020, there are these massive protests against police brutality and systemic racism. And what was the response? The vast majority of large cities in the US increased their police budgets. So which country is actually democratic? Huh? It makes you wonder, right? So we're gonna start talking about that issue. And then we're also gonna talk about China's foreign policy, President Xi Jinping took a historic trip to the Persian Gulf and signed a series of agreements with the GCC. It's a very interesting discussion because, you know, obviously we're not going to be praising the Gulf monarchies. They're certainly not political models to emulate, but it shows this increasing multi, increasingly multipolar world that we're in, where even longtime Western allies and previous client states are maintaining more of an independent foreign policy and playing China against the U.S. and trying to maintain good relations with both sides. We also saw that Xi Jinping announced when he visited Saudi Arabia that China is going to start buying oil and gas in the Chinese yuan, which is a massive blow to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar and the petrodollar. We're also going to talk about the historic uh, trip that uh, Vietnamese officials took to China and the important agreement signed between China and Vietnam. The Cuban president, um, Miguel Diaz-Canel, he also visited China. So there's a lot of things we're going to talk about today. Um, that, that's just a, a very brief overview. Um, Xi Jinping also made historic comments about Palestine. So, um, Carlos, I'll start with you. I, I kind of laid out a very um, short summary there of what we're going to be talking about today. Let's start with the protests that happened in China. Now, a lot of Western media outlets were very excited about these protests. There was wall-to-wall 24-7 -wall coverage. 
what do you think about the protests that were happening in China? Um, do, do, do they actually um, suggest that the Communist Party is on the verge of being overthrown, as Gordon Chang has said every single year for over a decade now? And what do you think of the, the government's response to these protests? Yeah, well, as you say, the, the media got super excited about the idea that these were some kind of broad anti-government protests. You know, someone apparently said something about not liking Xi Jinping, and all of a sudden it's 1989 Tiananmen Square all over again. And you really, you know, you can't stop the Western media getting excited about the idea of a color revolution in China. Uh, and sadly, but predictably, much of the left join in as well. You've, you've got Naomi Klein who jumps on Twitter and says this is a popular decentralized uprising in China. It's against authoritarian rule. This is so long in coming. We've got to support it. We've got to show solidarity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it wasn't, you know, it, there's no evidence whatsoever that it's anything to do with anti-government protests. The protests were about COVID restrictions and particularly local governments not following the national guidelines in terms of kind of the, these, you've got provinces and regions taking a one size fits all approach and just imposing lockdowns at the you know slightest hint of a COVID outbreak. And, and it's a manifestation, I think, of a certain frustration after nearly three years of this pandemic. The proximal trigger, of course, was this tragic apartment building fire in Xinjiang, uh, where 10 people died. Now, in terms of the scale of the protests, they were relatively small. Like, China's got over 600 cities, but there were only protests in around 15 cities. The largest was in Shanghai, a city of 26 million, and it was limited to just the center of town. Like, I've got a friend who lives in a relatively central suburb of Shanghai, and um, she said she wasn't affected by the protests at all, didn't you know even know about them until she looked on Weibo. So there was nothing like the scale of the protests, like you referenced the protests in 2020 in relation to Black Lives Matter, or, or in Britain in 2011, uh, after police murdered a young black man, Mark Duggan. Things kicked off in every major population centre in Britain, like where I live in North London, you definitely knew that protests were going on. So... You know, we don't have exact numbers and the, the US media's talked kind of vaguely about tens of thousands of people. I'd be surprised if the total number across the country was more than, say, 10 or 20,000, which, given China's population of 1.4 billion, is not a very significant number. Um, but as you said, the effect of the protests is very interesting. You know, we're told that China's authoritarian, we're, to we're told that China's undemocratic, but the response of the protests is a continuation of this process of weakening COVID restrictions. Like, it's difficult to say how much the protest directly impacted things because this is the direction of travel anyway. The government's made announcements regarding um, adjusting the COVID restrictions like several weeks before the protest kicked off. And it's been obvious for a while that change has been coming and it's kind of been signaled a little bit. For example, little things like Xi Jinping has resumed international travel. He went to Kazakhstan in September, then more recently Indonesia, Thailand, and, and most recently Saudi Arabia. So nonetheless, it seems like the protests had some kind of impact in terms of accelerating a process that was already underway. Now, yeah, like, as you say, don't you wish that was the case in the West with protests? Don't you wish that was the case in 2003 that we could have stopped the, this genocidal Iraq war that resulted in the deaths of a million, you know, a million plus people? Don't you wish the Black Lives Matter protest had resulted in a systematic dismantling of institutional racism and police violence against black people. Um, and the other 
kind of interesting side note is, you know, we're supposed to believe that Chinese people protested due to a tragic fire that killed, you know, a, a number of people in Urumqi, which is the capital city of Xinjiang, and a city that Danny and I were both in actually three years ago. And yet, think about what else the media tells us is happening in Xinjiang, like genocide, cultural genocide, forced sterilization, slavery, concentration camps, you know, the list goes on. So nobody said anything about that because they were scared of the government. But now apparently they're not scared of the government. And in fact, they hold the government to very high standards. So can it really be the case that people protest about this fire, but not about genocide? To me, that doesn't seem very plausible. And, you know, I think it adds to the evidence that these accusations regarding human rights in Xinjiang are pure, you know, Cold War slander and propaganda. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and you know, everything that Carlos said, I, I totally agree with. And I think what's so interesting is that there was this, I think the timing is very interesting because you had the Chinese government, you had China uh, sort of change its COVID policies around the same time that these pretty small protests occurred. But at the same time, uh, Carlos is 100% right. These protests didn't necessarily cause the change in COVID policy. China had been discussing this for several months. And weeks before, they had already been talking about, well, what is the next phase for COVID-19 management and uh, policy? And so I think what's important to note is that, yes, China was definitely, and the government was definitely uh, very much paying attention to these protests, even if they were very careful, because one thing that China has a history of is is color revolution, right? China has experienced this problem in the past, 2019, 2020, Hong Kong, the U.S., the National Endowment for Democracy was very much involved in those protests, very much involved in the violent parts of those protests in particular. And of course, we know about Tiananmen Square incident, April 4th, 1989. And the people that died outside of the square during that time and how there was also uh, covert U.S. involvement in certain sections of that protest movement. So uh, China is very careful about these things, especially when you had the U.S. and Western mainstream corporate media trying to exploit these protests for geopolitical gain. You had journalists, Western mainstream journalists, the BBC. There was this whole uh, sort of uh, drama made about the BBC journalist that was arrested. A lot of these Western mainstream journalists were working through consulates and uh, embassy buildings in places like Shanghai to try to stir up a kind of professionally managed protest movement. And this was going all around Telegram. There were people both inside of China, outside of China, uh, finding this kind of thing out. There were VPNs being used to try to manipulate things. And even still, they couldn't muster up anything more than uh, maybe a, a, a several thousand people in any one place. And that uh, just shows how ineffective uh, this color revolution attempt was and how uh, the vast majority of people, I think one thing that people don't understand is that the vast majority of people in China, even if they had problems with the COVID-19 policy as it was being applied in certain local areas, where there might have been excesses and where, you know, people were getting tired. It, it is true. This is kind of the phase of COVID-19 that we are in at this time. And so China uh, was trying to figure out how to deal with these problems. 
there were problems with testing. Uh, there were problems with certain local areas maybe going a little too far with mass testing and not really following the scientific evidence in certain communities uh, to ensure that people's livelihoods were protected. And that is what caused some of the stir. But at the same time, the Chinese government, especially the central government, was already figuring out that there was going to be a news phase in COVID-19 management. And now they are opening up uh, to a significant degree. But what I think is interesting is that uh, China only did this when they knew for China that such a thing could be considered safe if they took other measures to ensure people's safety. So China is really looking toward development. It's not really looking toward COVID-19 as any kind of political ploy, any kind of political problem. It's just trying to manage COVID-19 in a way now that will serve its development in the medium and long term. Because as we all know, uh, wherever we reside in the world, uh, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is now endemic, and that is not going to change. That is something that is wholly dependent on the overall world situation. And so China is reading the tea leaves and saying, well, it's time now to uh, really phase in a new kind of balancing act around COVID-19. And I think that we will see that the Western mainstream corporate media and how they're trying to say, well, now everyone's going to die in China, right? There's going to be millions of deaths. Before they were saying China's COVID-19 lockdown was authoritarian and it's so brutal and draconian. Now they're saying that because China's relaxing some of these measures, that everyone's going to die. Well, I think we're going to find out pretty quickly that neither was ever true and that the reality of the situation is, is that China was just doing the best that it could under very difficult circumstances. And if you look at the results, the death rate uh, and, and how people were protected, how most people in China have been living relatively normal lives for most of this last three year period and how China uh, is a re very resilient economy. And even if growth has been slow in the recent term, it is surely going to pick up pace, especially with what we're going to talk about later with how China has been conducting diplomacy and economic cooperation, even in just the last few months alone then we know that a lot of what we're hearing is just pure propaganda coming out of the Western mainstream corporate media and the political class, which so desperately wants to play the China card whenever they're experiencing failures elsewhere. And we know those failures are, are coming hard and fast in places like Ukraine, where that proxy war is only becoming more and more of a, of a dire situation and one that does not favor uh, their geopolitical ends. Yeah, it's really funny to see the... Uh, you know, they have your cake and eat it too attitude of a lot of the Western media. I saw people on Twitter making fun of Gordon Chang, which is always, you know, fun and easy to do. He's such a cartoon character. But there were all these tweets from Gordon Chang like a year ago where he said, you know, zero COVID is 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 a disaster. And, uh, you know, China is oppressing its people with the zero COVID policy. And now he's saying China's letting all its people die by abandoning the zero COVID policy. It's like, which do you want, bro? Like, do you want COVID, zero COVID to continue or not? And of course, it shows that it's not about the actual zero COVID policy. It's about attacking China. And all you have to do is just look at the scientific data. It's really incredible just seeing some of these graphs. This is a graph that was from the Financial Times, and it, was, it, was, it went viral on Twitter. And it shows the cumulative, de cumulative deaths in the U.S. versus China. And for people who, uh, I mean, can't really see it well because it's kind of grainy, the bottom pink line is China. So it's just like basically a rounding error, basically no deaths from COVID. 
And then the blue line is the U.S. And it shows that basically when Biden came in, he just continued Trump's policies, which is just doing whatever is in the interest of large corporations. And it's true that because of max vaccination, deaths are much lower now from COVID, which is good. Um, although there still are on, on every week in the U.S., there are two to 3,000 deaths. So people are still dying from COVID, although the media has just kind of started to ignore it because it's not as sexy as it used to be and they've moved on to other things. But all you have to do is just look at these graphs. This is another graph that shows data of regions of the world and the number of cumulative COVID deaths. And these are just confirmed COVID deaths. That's why for Africa, it tends to be low because you often have much weaker public health systems because of the legacy of colonialism in many African nations that they don't have the ability to report on a lot of these COVID deaths. So, but even if you look at these reported COVID death numbers from South America, North America, Europe, like a, a million in each area, and then you show Asia excluding China and you can't even see China on the graphs. So now, I mean, these graphs speak for themselves. China has potentially has saved what were potentially millions of lives. Now it's in a difficult moment because it has made the decision that COVID is going to be endemic and it does have to uh, pull back in some of these measures. So what measures can the government now take to minimize death and protect human lives? Of course, what's one of the few good things is that now the most of the strains that are dominant, the COVID strains are not as deadly as the, some of the previous COVID strains, which is one reason that potentially China is lifting some of these policies. But Carlos, I'm wondering, you know, you've been make, doing some good analysis about this. I saw on Twitter and you've written about China's response and China is not going to be like the U.S. or Brazil under Bolsonaro, where they were just like, good luck, just abandoning the people and just letting companies do whatever they want and make their workers work overtime and without any COVID protection, even though they are they are. Um, taking, uh, what's the term? They are rolling back some of the COVID restrictions. It doesn't mean that they're just rolling back all COVID restrictions. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, in, in September, Joe Biden said the pandemic is over, right? Um, and there's, there's essentially no restrictions now in the US. There's no restrictions in Britain. Um, you know, I was just on the tube on the London Underground there's not a mask in sight, you know, people coughing and spluttering all over the place. Um, and we act as if as if COVID-19 didn't exist anymore. But, you know, uh, tens of people are still dying every day in Britain from COVID. So it's very much not a full relaxation. It's not letting it rip. It's not letting the epidemic get out of control. How they're describing it and framing it is as an adjustment and an optimization. That means they're not going to resort to lockdowns as a kind of first choice means of treating an outbreak. There's going to be no more lockdowns except for really severe outbreaks. And they're encouraging cities to move away from this idea that thinking that lockdowns are just the one size fits all solution to COVID. They're ending the regimen of daily PCR testing, except for schools, hospitals and care homes, which is a pretty, pretty important caveat, right? Um, in Britain, in Europe, in the US, Kids are going to school, they're spreading COVID amongst themselves, they're taken at home and their grandparents are getting COVID and suffering very badly. So uh, uh, PCR testing is going to continue in schools, hospitals and care homes. 
there's an end to hospital quarantine except for severe cases where you need medical attention, which is kind of obviously sensible. So you get COVID, um, but if you don't have symptoms or you only have mild symptoms, then you quarantine at home and that frees up medical facilities to deal with severe cases and is generally much more convenient. Um, and there's a requirement now that schools should, and, you know, unless there's a severe outbreak, schools should carry on as normal, like, and that's obviously important for children's education. And it's really important for children's well-being after three years of this pandemic, and, and obviously for parents to be able to get on with work. So it's a significant adjustment, but it's very much not like in the West of just of just letting it rip and ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist. And I think, you know, there's a few important reasons that we've touched on uh, that you and Danny have touched on as to why this is happening. And just to pad those out a little bit, obviously there's a level of popular frustration um, and the, the whole situation of dealing with this testing regimen, like being seemingly out of nowhere, put in lockdown suddenly, is very frustrating, especially for people working in the service sector, makes things very difficult economically. Um, the other very important thing is that the virus has changed. You know, zero COVID was never meant to be um, you know, this one-size-fits-all approach. Like, first thing is, Omicron is the dominant var variant now. It's so transmissible. It's so difficult to prevent the spread. Like, China held out for a very long time trying to prevent people from getting infected with Omicron, and it has proven not to be possible. Like, other countries that were doing zero COVID, including Vietnam, including New Zealand, when Delta came around, they had to drop that, you know, um, because it was too difficult to keep Delta under control. China managed to keep Delta under control, um, which is a pretty incredible achievement, actually, given China's size and given China's got 14 land borders. Um, but Omicron is a cat and mouse game that seems to be unwinnable. On the other hand, and on the positive side, the virulence of Omicron, the chances of it um, generating severe illness or death, seems to be much lower than for previous variants. So Zhong Nanshan, who's China's top epidemiologist, who's led the response to COVID and, and who 20 years ago led the response to SARS, has said that Omicron's fatality rate is similar to flu, like it's around 0.1%. And 99% of those who get infected with Omicron fully recover within a week. Um, plus, there's the, fact, the vaccination factor. The vast majority of the Chinese population is vaccinated and they're stepping up their vaccination campaign for older people who thus far have tended to be somewhat more kind of vaccine resistant. And, you know, they're, they're calculating that they can essentially afford for significant numbers to be exposed to the virus, even get COVID without it turning into a public health disaster of the type we've seen in the West. But they're not, you know, it's they're not, as I said, they're not dropping all restrictions. I guarantee you, if you were to go on the Beijing metro now, everyone will be wearing a mask, whether it's a requirement or not. You know, people are still being careful. People are testing at home. And if they test positive for COVID, they're staying at home until they test negative. So the virus is changing. Science, uh, scientists in China have assessed that the trajectory of the virus is towards uh, becoming less virulent, towards causing less uh, extreme symptoms and causing less death. And at the end of the day, there's no perfect way to deal with this pandemic. Everything is a balancing act, as I think you said, Ben, before. And, and as Danny said, China can't beat COVID by itself. A pandemic doesn't respect borders. It's, you know, it's very similar to climate change, right? A single country can't save itself by giving up on fossil fuels. If the other major countries had followed China's strategy in early 2020, um, humanity, we could have defeated COVID-19. Like, 
this wasn't a done deal from the beginning. We could have cut the chains of transmission. It wasn't inevitable that COVID would become an endemic. Um, you know, that's what the, the World Health Organization was proposing. That's what China did. The other major countries didn't, you know, if they, if they had done, we would have been uh, telling a very different story now, but that's the situation. Yeah, Danny, is there anything you wanted to add to that or should we move to talk about China's foreign policy? What do you think? Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good to move on. I mean, Carlos <laughs> really went through the the entire response and yeah, no, uh, no issue there to move on. Yeah, great, great analysis, Carlos. Um, so Danny, we, we can pivot a little bit and I'll ask you next then. Let's talk about some of the interesting foreign policy um, developments that we've seen with China in the past few weeks. I want to start with Xi Jinping's historic visit to the Persian Gulf. He also met with the leadership in Palestine and made important comments that we were going to talk about. But this, this is an interesting, um, complex issue that I've seen some people on the left a lot, really confused over because obviously... There are many reasons to be very critical of the Persian Gulf monarchies. Historically, they have been kind of client regimes of U.S.-led imperialism. Many of these regimes, in fact, were largely created by the British Empire and acted as kind of comprador bourgeois forces on behalf of the British Empire and then later the U.S. Empire. But what we have seen, not for the first time, but especially in the past few years, is an attempt by some of the political leadership in the Gulf monarchies to try to exert a little more independence. And in this new Cold War, we've seen many countries around the world refuse to simply pick a side. The United States is going around, quite literally, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is visiting countries and pressuring them to cut their ties with China and Russia. And most countries in the world are refusing to pick a side. Even Europe, Many leaders like Olaf Scholz, who, who recently also visited China, are refusing to join the new Cold War in China. They support the new Cold War in Russia, but not in China. And similarly, uh, the U.S., and especially in East Asia and Southeast Asia, is trying to pressure countries who historically have had very uh, difficult relations with China, you know, South Korea, for example, or Japan, which colonized China, even those countries that are occupied by the U.S. military still are not cutting off their relations with China and are maintaining a position of, if not neutrality, they're trying to play the different sides uh, to serve their interests. And I think the Gulf is another region. Of course, the Persian Gulf is one of the world's most geostrategic region regions in the sense that it produces and exports a plurality of the world's fossil fuels, oil and gas. Saudi Arabia is the world's largest exporter of oil. Russia is the second largest export of oil. And now with Western sanctions on Russia, Europe is refusing to buy Russian oil. So anyway, the point is that Xi Jinping understands the geostrategic importance of the, the Gulf monarchies. I don't think anyone seriously thinks that the, the Communist Party of China is saying that, you know, Saudi Arabia has, there are comrades who have joined us in the political struggle. No, but China has an, a non-aligned foreign policy of trying to maintain respect for all sovereign states. And like it or not, these Gulf monarchies are sovereign states recognized at the United Nations. And China recognizes that if it can maintain better relations with these countries, and if these countries can play a more neutral role and not simply 
play the role they have historically played as basically proxies of, of US-led imperialism, it can help build a, a more democratic world all around. So that's my overall view. I'm, I'm curious what you think, Danny, about this this trip that Xi Jinping took to the Gulf and the I don't know if you read the agreement he signed with the GCC. Yeah, well, I think what was very interesting about this China Arab summit and then there was a China GCC summit that occurred and then of course China had, you know, a, about a dozen bilateral meetings with the uh, Arab states, uh with the states in the GCC and in the region and I think what was very interesting to me was watching how a lot of people, even on the left, people who I would consider comrades, react to this in a very, uh, I would say, um, you know, a simplistic manner. So uh, there were some who believed that because China is growing its relationship and, and really establishing with Saudi Arabia a comprehensive strategic partnership, one that had existed but really took off after this meeting, uh, there were about 35 agreements signed between the two countries. And I think Saudi Arabia essentially signed its biggest trade package with any country than it ever had. So uh, it's, a, it's a very significant moment in relations, not just between the two countries, but for the world. And so some were questioning whether this growing relationship would fray ties uh, with Iran. Would China's comprehensive strategic partnership with Iran be damaged by this? Because as a lot of you may know, Saudi Arabia and Iran are very much at odds. Uh, Saudi Arabia firmly stands in opposition to not only Iran's domestic policy, but especially its foreign policy in the region and its support for Syria, for example, and uh, its overall position on the role that each of these states play in the region uh, politically and, and economically. So, you know, for me, that's that's a ridiculous assertion because I think not only is Iran mature enough to understand that China needs to make friends with everybody in order to really survive economically in these incredibly complicated but also dangerous times where you have the United States flailing about as a declining hegemon willing to use all of the tools at its disposal to weaken China, to weaken Russia, uh, today, it was announced that Joe Biden is considering expanding the blacklist of Chinese tech companies that will uh, be sanctioned from certain components that the U.S. produces and or distributes. Uh, there's also uh, now rumors of TikTok being banned on Google and Apple uh, apps, right, iOS and Google devices, which is a global ban. It, it's not just uh, the United States uh, doing some kind of domestic ban. This would affect users, uh, social media users all across the world. So uh, with that said, right, China has the right to develop stronger ties with Saudi Arabia. And I think Iran understands that. So whenever there are complicated geopolitical questions, I think it's important to uh, really look deeper at why this is happening and, and the reason why it's happening. And, and, you know, China and Saudi Arabia have been friends, have been allies in a lot of ways economically. Uh, you know, China takes a very neutral position on politics. China does not politicize its relations with other countries. It firmly wants, you know, a more peaceful region. It wants to play a helpful role in any conflict that emerges or is ongoing in the region. But surely it's not going to interfere in the affairs of Saudi Arabia, Iran, or any other country in the region because of what kind of message that sends, not just to them, 
but also to the United States and in countries that consider themselves adversaries to China and also the region, because China and the entire region of uh, the Middle East, of, uh, of this part of West Asia, uh, they have a really common history of being under the gun of U.S. imperialism. Even Saudi Arabia's relationship, while uh, mainly cordial with the United States, has been uh, really tested even in just the last six months alone. You had Joe Biden go to Saudi Arabia in July begging for Saudi Arabia to boost its oil production to uh, essentially soften the blow of U.S. and EU sanctions on Russia over this Ukraine proxy war. And uh, Saudi Arabia refused because of the precedent that that sets even for a country like Saudi Arabia, which is a main oil producer, one of the biggest in the world. And uh, its entire economy is hinged and the entire U.S. dollar uh, hegemony and imperialist economy is dependent upon Saudi oil. So uh, Saudi Arabia said absolutely not. And that immediately led to the United States using the human rights issue with Saudi Arabia. There, of course, there's a lot of human rights concerns to be had, but the United States started to use this as a way to frame the situation as Saudi Arabia is being a pariah state because it's not doing exactly what we say. And that immediately sent a message to the Saudi monarchy that, well, this relationship with the United States has always been very uh, tenuous, right? It's been based on mutual interest, sure, but there have been many points and sources of conflict, especially when you have Saudi Arabia sitting in maybe the most unstable region in uh, in the world and also playing a role in that and having to maintain some semblance of legitimacy itself. So Saudi Arabia is like, well, it's now time to look at China even more seriously. It's not that China and Saudi Arabia didn't already have really strong ties. Huawei was building really robust telecommunications projects already. The New York Times complained about that in July. Uh, there's a lot of competition going on. And the United States is the one that uh, is, is doing all of the pearl clutching because China is just conducting business as usual. This is not special to China. This is just about moving forward on already existing visions, especially after the CPC National Congress, which was very clear in stating that the policy of China is not interference around the world, but it is going to strengthen and deepen ties everywhere and anywhere it can so that it can meet its development goals and also help serve the development goals of others. That's what it means to do win-win cooperation. And the United States is surely having a very hard time with this because it does signal a huge geopolitical shift in the world. It signals that this multipolar world is not something that's down the line, that it's happening right now. And even countries like Saudi Arabia that the United States always believed would be in its back pocket, would be dependent upon its weapons, dependent upon its economy. Now that sort of thing, is, that sort of idea, that sort of hubris is being challenged in a very material way. Yeah, I mean, what this reminds me of is when, uh, you know, in Brazil, because of the coup against Dilma Rousseff in 2016, and then the imprisonment of Lula da Silva in 2018 on fake charges by the CIA asset Sergio Moro. And I mean, basically these US-backed coups that removed the Workers' Party government and installed Jair Bolsonaro in power. Because Brazil, because of those circumstances out of China's control, led to the installation of this fascist leader, Jair Bolsonaro, China and Xi Jinping were forced to maintain relations with Jair Bolsonaro, who campaigned demonizing China, who called 
COVID, the China virus and all this stuff attacking China. And yet Xi Jinping, understanding the importance of Brazil as a massive country, the largest country in Latin America, it used to have the sixth largest economy in the world, the sixth most populous country in the world, part of the BRIC system. China had to maintain close relations with Brazil, regardless of who its political leadership is. And I think it's it has a very pragmatic approach as well in terms of the Gulf monarchies. And, you know, I just want to look briefly before I pivot to you, Carlos, and get your view. But I want to look at what but Persian Gulf media outlets have been saying. Of course, there's no such thing as the free press in these Persian Gulf monarchies. So when, when we read media outlets like Al Arabiya and these others, they represent the position of the states in, in the region. And I want to look at a few articles here from Arab Weekly, which gives, a, gives us a perspective of what these Gulf monarchies are thinking. This is an article titled, With Chinese Leaders Visit, Riyadh Shows Intent to Forge Strategic Partnership balance ties with U.S. So obviously no one is seriously claiming that Saudi Arabia is now part of the resistance axis. Obviously not, right? But Saudi Arabia understands that China, first of all, has the largest economy in the world according to purchasing power parity, which is a much better measurement and continues to grow. And by 2030, China will have a larger economy even in nominal terms in, in terms of U.S. dollars. So everyone around the world wants to improve their relations with China. Uh, Saudi Arabia and China are, or excuse me, China is Saudi Arabia's largest trading partner. So obviously they have a vested interest in improving their relations. Saudi Arabia also is the world's largest exporter of oil and China is the world's largest importer of oil. China imports nearly as much oil as all of Europe combined. So clearly they have economic reasons aside from their political systems they have economic interests that drive them to having positive relations. And if you look at what the Saudi government is saying, they're not saying we're cutting ties with the U.S. They're saying we're balancing our ties with the U.S. with our ties with China. We're refusing to pick one side. And I think another key element of this that I alluded to earlier that I think is fundamentally significant is the element of the petrodollar. Because Xi Jinping himself discussed this in Riyadh, and she... People probably know that when she gives speeches publicly, he's very cautious and very diplomatic. He often does not say exactly what we know that the Communist Party of China is thinking. For instance, sometimes the foreign ministry spokespeople are more outs outspoken and critical than even President Xi himself, who is always very cautious and diplomatic in his comments. So that's why it's very important to look at the comments he made about challenging the petrodollar essentially and this is another article in the arab weekly titled in new risk to us dollar china calls for trade in yuan at riyadh summit president xi jinping told gulf arab leaders that china would work to buy oil and gas in yuan a move that would the, the yuan is of course china's national currency this would support beijing's goal to establish its currency internationally and weaken the us dollar's grip on world trade. They also know that any move by Saudi Arabia to ditch the dollar in its oil trade would be a seismic political move. Now, the, the petrodollar goes back to the 1970s in which the Saudi monarchy decided that it would it was pressured by the US to, to sell, to list all of its oil in international markets in the dollar, to sell its oil in the dollar, which is one of the ways that the US dollar can be maintained as this global reserve currency it goes back to the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944. 
So being able to erode that, especially with the largest economy, especially with the country that is the world's largest importer of oil, that is a massive blow to, to the imperialist world system led by the United States. If you look at how the capitalist world system is organized, the US dollar is used in over 80% of global transactions, 80%, over 80% of the foreign exchange reserves of the central banks in the world are in, held in dollars. So in any way that a country can erode that US dollar hegemony, that is progressive. It opens political and economic space for countries to challenge the hegemony of US imperialism and the capitalist world system as a whole, because it's very difficult to develop socialism when you're in this global financial system dominated by US controlled financial institutions. So I, I just wanted to emphasize those points because for me, from a, a geoeconomic angle, I think they are of paramount importance. But um, Carlos, I'll, I'll go to you now. I'm, I'm curious what you think about this trip that that um, President Xi said was a milestone trip. And you can also maybe talk not only about the GCC agreement, but also the, the meetings that President Xi held with the Palestinian leadership when he was in Riyadh. Great, thank you. I mean, yeah, I think, I think it's really important to reiterate the point you made about the principles of non-interference and how China conducts itself in its international relations. Because, you know, we don't need to sugarcoat it, you know, Saudi Arabia, as you said, is not about to be welcomed into the resistance axis. It's played a, a pretty consistently reactionary role in the region. Um, it's involved in a truly vicious and contemptible war in Yemen, which has created a humanitarian disaster that makes Ukraine look like a high school brawl. Um, it's added fuel to the fire in Syria. It maintains this very nasty sectarian strategy that Danny referenced vis-a-vis -vis Iran. But you know, one thing is China aims to have good relations with all countries, including the US, which by any reasonable measure is the worst offender in terms of foreign policy and aggression today. Yeah. Um, you know, such, the, the, such are the principles of non-interference. You know, China's actually very strongly committed to the UN Charter and to the overriding principles of, of international law. And what would the alternative be, actually? Like the alternative would be for China to, to boycott Saudi Arabia, to refuse to have relations with Saudi Arabia, to refuse to trade with it. But that would be an example of imposing unilateral sanctions. How could China then go on and denounce the West's unilateral sanctions that it applies against Cuba, against Russia, against Belarus, against North Korea, Zimbabwe, Iran, Syria, Venezuela, Nicaragua, I mean, the list goes on. And secondly, there's this very interesting geopolitical dynamic. Saudi Arabia is a developing country and its specific circumstances and its specific interests are leading it towards, um, you know, in a kind of a tortuous way towards greater cooperation with other developing countries. And this is a situation, as you've mentioned, that can lead to useful progress in terms of the, the road towards a multipolar world. And, you know, like, I think the Ukraine crisis is something that's it's brought up a lot of contradictions, um, or it's highlighted a lot of contradictions, particularly when coupled with the US's changing energy needs. Um, you know, the US has become used to being able to tell Saudi Arabia and telling the Gulf states what to do. They've had this 
somewhere between toxic and symbiotic relationship in which you know the Saudis provide abundant quantities of oil and they adjust their output and they adjust their prices in line with what Washington wants them to do. And then they spend all their profits purchasing high-tech US weaponry that they then use to throw their weight around in the region, although never towards uh, helping out the Palestinians, interestingly. But now the Ukraine crisis has come along and kind of exposed some fault lines. Russia is a member of the OPEC plus group and Russia, Saudi and the other countries of the region are all major energy producers. They all cooperate on that basis. The US wanted all of these countries to join in with their unilateral sanctions, their illegal sanctions against Russia, but they haven't. You know, it's not in their interest to do so. The US wanted the Saudis to boost production to make up for the energy shortfall in Europe that's been caused by the sanctions. That's what Biden's visit to Riyadh a few months ago was all about, the, the fist bump in the desert and you know whatever other absurdity. Um, but the Saudis weren't willing. And that indicates a certain geopolitical shift, which is extremely consequential. If the major Arab states are less inclined to act on instructions from Washington and prefer to balance their relationships with the US by having positive and mutually beneficial relations with Russia and China, yeah, this is interesting. There's some potential here. Part of the material basis for all of this, by the way, is the US's changing energy needs. The US used to be really heavily reliant on Middle Eastern oil. Since the advent and the expansion of fracking uh, and, and shale gas production, the US has become a net energy exporter. So the changing economic relationship has provided some context for a changing political relationship. And then obviously, there's the rise of China, right? You know, the US has pushed the Arab states to join in with their decoupling project and to support all of their slanders regarding Xinjiang, etc. Actually, not a single Arab state has done that. Not a single Arab state has joined in with sanctions on China, has um, signed statements against China uh, in relation to human rights in Xinjiang at the UN, etc. They've all reiterated their support for the wine China principle, and they've all reiterated their support for China's uh, sovereignty and its ability to deal with its own you know, rights within its own territory, within its own borders. So countries tend to like what China has to offer, which is win-win, mutually beneficial cooperation without coercion, without political uh, interference. You know, the Arab world, as Xi Jinping uh, pointed out in his speeches at the GCC and at the China-Arab States Summit, was an important part of the ancient Silk Road. And indeed, it's an important part of the new Silk Road, of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you know, the, the countries of the region want to attract Chinese investment. They want to take advantage of Chinese scientific and technological know-how. Like China's become a world leader in re renewable energy. The countries of the Arab world are having to face up to reducing their reliance on fossil fuels, which have been the basis of a lot of their economies for the last century. So what better country to coordinate with than China? Um, so, and then as you've referenced, Ben, like the possibility of conducting oil trade in yuan rather than dollars, like that's, that's crucial. That's got uh, global significance because dollar hegemony is such an important component of American power. Like it's one of the central roadblocks to a multipolar and a post-imperialist world. Like dollar hegemony is how the US is able to impose its sanctions, is able to impose um, economic coercion around the world. Saudi Arabia is applied to, uh, to join BRICS, as has Iran, as has Algeria, right? Um, meanwhile, China has excellent relations with Syria, is a supporter of Palestine. So this type of cooperation creates a situation potentially where China could actually help to resolve 
some of these long-term and very complex tensions and problems in the region. Um, you mentioned um, Palestine, and I'll, I'll just reference that briefly, if it's okay. Um, because, yeah, yeah, go for it, for sure. Um, in his speech to the China Arab Summit, and then in his bilateral meeting with Mahmoud Abbas, Xi Jinping very strongly reiterated China's position of support for Palestinians. Um, and I'll just read out a quote. He said, the historic injustices done to the Palestinian people should not be left unattended indefinitely. The legitimate rights and interests of a nation are not up for trade and the demand to establish an independent state shall not be denied. So he called for rapid progress towards the establishment of a genuinely independent state of Palestine based on 1967 borders, which is the long-standing demand of the PLO. He called for Palestine to be a full member of the UN, not an observer member. He said that China welcomes the recent reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas that happened in Algeria a couple of months ago. And, you know, at a time when the World Cup is taking place in Qatar, when lots of Palestinian flags have been flying, um, and there's more attention than usual on the Palestinian question, I think those statements are really significant. And they say very clearly to the Palestinian people, we support you and we're willing to use our status and our reality as a major power and a rising power to, to promote and to support your cause and to show solidarity with your struggle. Yeah, I, I mean, we can, it, it would be a long conversation if we talked about the weaknesses of the uh, so-called Palestinian leadership. I know among the, the average Palestinian worker, uh, Mahum Babas um, Abu Mazen is certainly not a popular figure and is seen as a, as a collaborator. But again, China inherited these political situations. China doesn't determine what the geopolitical framework is. And because China has a non-interventionist foreign policy, it has to work within these confines of meeting with these leaders who are recognized by international institutions as leaders, despite the fact that they might have political differences with them. Um, now, there's so much we could say about this, but just in, in the interest of keeping our conversation more manageable today, there are a few other historic visits in terms of China's foreign policy that we wanted to talk about. And Danny, um, this is something that has really interested me a lot over the years, and you and I have discussed this, and that's the um, improvement of relations between the Communist Party of China and the Communist Party of Vietnam. And we saw that Win Phu Trung, who is the general secretary of the Communist Party of Vietnam, also took a recent historic trip to Beijing and China, uh, the communist parties of China and Vietnam signed a series of agreements pledging to integrate their economies more closely, increase trade and to, to deep their political integration. Now we saw that the U.S. government has been trying to um, put uh, divisions, to, to create divisions in between China and Vietnam, despite the fact that the U.S. government committed genocide in Vietnam, killing 3 million people. We saw most recently that Vice President um, Kamala Harris visited Vietnam and made a series of diplomatic blunders. For instance, she laid a wreath at like this place that was honoring John McCain, who was bombing Vietnam. He uh, Allegedly, he was bombing a Vietnamese light bulb factory when he was shot down, which is a civilian target, of course. So it's a war crime. So uh, clearly, U.S. diplomats are not very good at, even though they're trying to um, create more divisions between Vietnam and China, they haven't succeeded. We have seen that despite some of the historic um, conflicts between China and Vietnam, they, they do seem to be improving their relations. 
which is, of course, very important. If we study the history of the Sino-Soviet split, the last thing we want is a Sino-Vietnamese split. I'm wondering what you think about this meeting that the General Secretary of the Communist Party of Vietnam took and Chinese-Vietnamese relations. Well, it was a huge meeting, and it was the first one that China took, that Xi Jinping took, following the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. It was a definite statement that China, after the CPC National Congress, was going to prioritize its relationships with fellow socialist countries, because as we'll talk about afterward, uh, Cuba, right, Miguel Diaz-Canal, was the next visitor to China to firm up bilateral relations. So this was huge. But Vietnam really does hold increasing importance because Vietnam, and this is what has been talked about for the last several months, if people follow Financial Times, if people follow Business Insider, if you follow the Wall Street Journal too, like these kind of economic elite driven corporate media outlets, they talk a lot about things like Vietnam being now the new factory of the world, right? That Vietnam's economy is growing very fast in in, in significant numbers, right? Uh, it, it is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And that is very much true, but how they always frame it as it is positioned against China. And so China has been very sensitive to this because they understand that a lot of this has to do with geopolitics as well. A lot of this has to do with the U.S.'s geopolitical and imperial strategy of trying to so-called make alliances uh, with East Asian countries to uh, essentially isolate China. And so this was a very big meeting. I mean, there, there, there already had been such a massive increase in trade between the two countries. I think in the last year alone, there's been a 20% increase in bilateral trade uh, with, between Vietnam and China. And a lot of people like to, in the West at least, understand uh, you, uh, any kind of relationship that, the, that China has with other countries as being like colonial or very imbalanced. But actually, China prioritizes not just its exports, not just its own interests, not just its own economic output, but actually I think China has, I think, increased its imports from Vietnam something like 37 times since two, uh, 2002, that it's gone up by a factor of 37 uh, in that moment, in that period of time from 2002 until this current period, the last two decades. And that's huge because Vietnam is not just an exporter of you know, what we might understand in the United States that it exports things like, you know, clothing, textiles, things that are maybe uh, lower value added goods. No, actually, Vietnam is now becoming a major technology producer as well. And so you have this bilateral trade going on where you have China exporting its own high value added good and goods in Vietnam, also complementing China with uh, uh, technology and things like that, that China needs. And China and Vietnam have actually, through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, uh, something called the, um, it's called the, uh, uh, I think it's called the Two Corridors and One Economic Circle. So they're trying to build networks of interconnectivity, transportation, uh, modes of distribution, and just general public infrastructure together, which can help them become more interconnected. And so... Over the last two years, I would say, especially the last year and a half, the importance of this friendship has become all the more a point of focus for China because before that, during especially the Obama years, during the initial pivot to Asia, there was a lot of talk about kind of pulling away this 
uh, other socialist market economy, the smaller socialist market economy in this region away from China, aligning it more with uh, the countries like Japan and South Korea, which were more aligned with U.S. policy uh, against China. And, and that's been an utter and I think a total failure because Vietnam not only doesn't ascribe to U.S. diktats, but it comes out with a position of neutrality, which is very difficult to win in a propaganda war against because Vietnam is not saying that it sides with China on everything, that it's that China and Vietnam are just, you know, in agreement with all policy. They have affirmed, right, their uh, uh, alliance in terms of being socialist countries and their solidarity together on that basis, but they still have disagreements. But Vietnam is saying, well, we're not going to get in the middle of some kind of cold war that the United States is leading or, and you know, that China is forced to engage in. And that has, I think, caused a lot of trouble for the United States. And it's very good news for the region at large and for the world, because these two countries, China and Vietnam, are perhaps two of the most important economies in the world. And for the next uh, several decades, for the next generation or two, uh, we're going to see these countries play an increasingly important role in all aspects of development, economic, political, security, everything, because uh, they reside in a region with China in the lead that is the fastest growing, that is uh, uh, really uh, doing what the world needs, which is developing uh, a mode of production that can meet the modern needs of the global population in a way that is more just, more equitable, more sustainable, both for people and the planet. And so this meeting was very important. And it was a huge statement for China to come out and say that Vietnam is a top priority, that our relationship with Vietnam is a top priority, that we're going to award the leader of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Vietnam a Friendship Medal of Honor uh, in order to show that, yeah, these divisions that the U.S. is planting are not what the Western mainstream media are making them out to be. Uh, there are disagreements on certain issues, for example, in the South China Sea, but those problems are ones that can be worked out bilaterally and through cooperation and dialogue amongst each other, not through any kind of interference by the United States. And that's something that China and Vietnam 100% agree upon. Yeah, I, I should recommend an article that you published, Danny, that I um, can link to in the comments here. It's called China Forges Bonds of Friendship as it Builds a Modern Socialist Country. And um, it was republished at Friends of Socialist China. I'll link to that in, in the comments for people who are watching. Um, but yeah, it's a historic development. And it's very important considering this cynical strategy by the U.S., which once again waged a genocidal war in Vietnam to try to divide Vietnam from China. It's clearly not going to work. That's what Vietnam is saying. Although Vietnam does have a foreign policy like China that tries to maintain good relations with everyone. So they still will maintain relations with the U.S. despite that horrible history. Um, Carlos, uh, there are also another series of historic meetings taken by leaders to Beijing. Um, we've Danny and I mentioned the trip by Cuba's president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, um, but also there was a trip by the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz. So I'm wondering if you want to talk about those meetings. Um, I think both of them were important for obviously very different reasons. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, in terms of Cuba and Miguel Diaz-Canel, you know, it was highly significant 
the first state visit from the Americas following the CPC's 20th Congress, which again indicates something about the importance um, with which China gives its relations with Cuba. Um, obviously, they're very different countries in many ways, like China's got a population of 1.4 billion, it's got 14 land borders, it's on the Eurasian mainland. Cuba, meanwhile, has got a population of 11 million. It's a Caribbean island, just a few miles from the east coast of the US. But they share a very strong ideological affinity, which has only gr grown stronger, actually, over the years and decades. And the Communist Party of Cuba and the, the Communist Party of China hold, e hold one another in very high esteem. And there are excellent kind of party-to-party -party relations, people-to-people -people relations. Uh, and that was really cultivated um, by Fidel Castro, um, particularly in the 1990s. You know, there was a bit of an interruption in relations with the Sino-Soviet split. Um, but don't forget that Cuba, actually just a few months after its revolution, after, after the 26th of July movement seized power in 1959, Cuba became the first country in the Americas to extend diplomatic recognition to the People's Republic of China. Um, then with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the special period in Cuba, um, China's support was really critical for Cuba and the, and the relationship on a political level, a diplomatic level, an economic level, a cultural level has continued to, to blossom ever since. Um, and then the second reason the visit was so significant as Danny has kind of referenced is that China's very obviously been prioritizing socialist countries in its diplomatic relations following the 20th Congress. We've talked about Nguyen Phu Trong, who was the first head of state to visit Beijing after the Congress. Soon after, then the Canal came. Since then, the Lao president, uh, president has also been in Beijing. So this you know, makes another statement on China's part about the importance it accords to relations with the socialist world. I think you know, Xi Jinping said something you know, very powerful in relation to China-Cuba relations while uh, Diaz Canel was in Beijing. He said, no matter how the international situation may change, China's commitment to long-term friendship with Cuba will not change. China's determination to support Cuba in pursuing socialism will not change. And of course, he reiterated, as China very often reiterates, its you know, very resolute opposition to the US's criminal blockade on Cuba. And then uh, recently, CGTN just released an interview with, with um, Diaz-Canel in which he describes Xi Jinping as his role model, talks about how the Cuban party makes a very serious study of, of Chinese political documents and of the documents of the 20th Congress in order to learn the lessons that can be applied at home. So he's talking about um, Cuba's and Chinese, China's cooperation on an ideological and political level to actually advance the science of Marxism and scientific socialism in the 21st century. Um, in terms of the practical side, what was agreed? Well, there were lots of investment agreements signed, a $100 million cash donation to help Cuba recover from the recent sequence of natural disasters and accidents, and a commitment to uh, bring various important projects, in particular renewable energy projects, to, to their conclusion. So all in all, a very fruitful and a very um, both practical and symbolic visit. Uh, then you asked me to comment also on Olaf Scholz's visit to Beijing, which is also you know, extremely interesting for very different reasons, like that Scholz would visit China so soon after the 20th Congress 
um, and be the first Western leader to go to Beijing since the start of the pandemic, since the, the beginning of 2020, uh, is quite a big thing. The US certainly wasn't happy about it. Like there were lots of cold warriors in Washington and in Berlin that weren't happy about it. You know, the US has been putting this massive pressure on its allies to decouple from Russia, decouple from China. And, and this is the strategy that's really taking shape in, uh, in the Biden era. It's this idea of building an alliance of so-called democracies under US leadership. The problem is it, it only works in the US's interests. Germany knows that it can't do without Russian energy and it can't do without Chinese markets. Actually, Angela Merkel, who is no kind of progressive, was quite effective in terms of moving Germany towards some kind of geostrategic balance, maintaining good relations with the West, but also cultivating good relations with China and with Russia. Um, and I think Schultz has demonstrated a certain, in my view, quite surprising level of political independence by going to Beijing in the face of the criticism that he's faced. Um, you know, what did he say in Beijing? He said, China remains an important business and trading partner for Germany and Europe. We don't want to decouple from it. He's saying that we don't want decoupling. We do recognize that a multipolar world is inevitable. That's what the 21st century looks like. We do recognize that we have to do business with and have positive and, and mutually beneficial relations with China. So I think you know this represents the first, or at least the first big rupture within this new Cold War front that the Biden regime is trying to put together. And as such, is, is a very interesting and, and very welcome development that we should keep our eyes on. Yeah, I, I think it's very important, not because Germany will be able to have some kind of strategic autonomy, but because it shows that the European ruling class does not support Washington's new Cold War in China. We need to stress that there is a two-front new Cold War there's the new Cold War in China, which is the principal new Cold War. And then part of that is also the new Cold War in Russia. And clearly the European ruling class, for the most part, supports the new Cold War in Russia for a variety of reasons. But for the most part, they do not support the new Cold War in China. And we've seen comments as well from Emmanuel Macron suggesting the same, that France does not share Washington's vicious opposition to China. A lot of that is simply out of economic necessity. China's, uh, excuse me, Germany's largest trading partner is China. It is not the United States. And that's true for many countries in Europe. They do more trade with China than the United States. Now, they also want to maintain relations with the United States. That's why they're trying not to pick a side. But the question is if they can maintain that strategic autonomy. And I think they can't clearly. They cannot clearly. They are being more and more subordinated to the United States as part of this new Cold War. And as we see with the destruction of the European economy and the deindustrialization of the European economy, the Financial Times has had multiple articles in the Wall Street Journal about, and these are of course articles written for the European and US ruling classes respectively. These are articles written for investors warning about the flight of capital from Europe to the United States and entire industries leaving Europe and going to the United States because they can't afford energy, because the US, the Biden administration now has subsidies it's offering companies. So we see a deindustrialization of Europe being led by the United States, which means as the European 
economic system becomes more and more reliant on the U.S., less and less political sovereignty for Europe. And until politicians, you know, bourgeois politicians in Europe, uh, I mean, unless the revolutionary left takes power anytime soon, but until bourgeois politicians in, in Europe are willing to forcibly condemn that, unfortunately, I think it's just going to get worse and worse. The, the trip that Schultz made is kind of the, the bare minimum of pushing back, if you will. But um, I mean, there's, that's another topic that we could spend an hour discussing, but I know we wanted to try to keep our conversation today under 90 minutes. So as we begin wrapping up, there was another significant development that happened this November, and that was the passing of Jiang Zemin, who was the previous general secretary of China and also president of China from 1993 until 2003. And he represented a, a new era of socialism with Chinese characteristics following Deng Xiaoping. And what's interesting is that when China is discussed frequently in Western media reporting, it's often discussed as the Mao era, the Deng era, and then just fast forwarding to the Xi era, right? But I think it is important to talk about the previous leaders before Xi to understand how we got on this trajectory to where we are today. So I'm wondering, um, we'll start with you, Danny, I'm wondering what you think about his passing and, and what, what his historical significance was for China. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll just first comment on how a lot of the China watchers, a lot of the new cold warriors that are so bent on politicizing everything about China to serve their quote unquote China bad narrative, how they reacted. Uh, their reaction was one of, well, uh, Xi Jinping is so bad that you have the whole world mourning for uh, uh, Zemin, Mr. Zhang Zemin. I mean, it was quite astounding to see this, given the fact that none of these forces have any uh, real comprehensive understanding of the relationship between someone like uh, Jiang Zemin and uh, Xi Jinping, for example. And so, you know, a, a lot of the hand wringing about this is about trying to paint China as so authoritarian under Xi that it makes you beg for another so-called so authoritarian leader that was supposedly less so because uh, the uh, trope is that uh, Jiang Zemin uh, was part of the, you know, some people call it the wild 90s, right, was a, a part of this era where opening up and reform was taken to its highest level and thus much more friendly to the United States and U.S. interests. But this totally distorts Chinese history and just history in general because, you know, Jiang Zemin was very significant on the foreign policy front he, during Cuba's special period was so important to Cuba in forging and deepening ties with Cuba. Uh, but Jiang Zemin also ushered in this era, as you were saying, Ben, that it was an it was an era where opening up and reform was accelerated to uh, while uh, it was definitely more about trying to get foreign investment and capital investment intensified. It was geared toward meeting and raising the standards of living in China. And that was actually done. That was very successful. It did come with contradictions, but those contradictions were always well known. That's one of the things that I think is often misunderstood about Chinese history is that it's often looked at, as you said, as, well, there was Dang, you know, and then there this fast forwarding to Xi. Uh, and before that, there was Mao. And it's all about trying to paint, well, the Mao period was like full communism, right? Full communism, full 
for China watchers and, and cold warriors, it's like full communism repression. While for those who are kind of on the ultra left, Mao represents this like, well, things were a lot better during the Mao period. Things got worse during the Deng period. Everything in between, no understanding at all. No one was paying attention to China in the post-Soviet period. And then move into Xi and it's, well, uh, China's really bad because of human rights or whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the talking points that we've been force fed. But I think the point is, is that Jiang Zemin for Chinese people represents this process of building socialism and that his period was one of of just massive growth in prosperity and that the problems that came with the opening up and the acceleration of it uh, were ones that were pretty well known by the party and ones that were addressed over the course of time into this period where you do see this unprecedented anti-corruption campaign and this unprecedented attempt uh, by the Communist Party of China to direct its policy toward not just uh, growth for growth's sake and quantity growth, but quality growth, and to continue on building upon poverty alleviation and moving into advancing the interests, the modern interests, right? Modernizing the Chinese economy to its fullest extent, building a modern socialist country and uh, meeting these development goals and addressing all of the contradictions along the way. I think that's what Jiang Zemin re- really represents a particular phase in that process. And, you know, his theory of the three represents and his emphasis on technological growth, on uh, modernizing the military. All of these things are so critically important today for China, given where China is now in the total world situation. China occupies a place of just extreme importance, right? Without China, the whole world economy would have collapsed in 2007, 2008, to the point of uh, probably never getting back to any point of positive growth at all. China really uh, was a saving grace, even for the United States in that way. And and so China's ability to uh, navigate world circumstances, geopolitics, economic crises, all of these things uh, were really firmed up and strengthened during this period that a lot of people misremember as just, you know, it's all about opening up and reform. It's all about uh, uh, neoliberalizing China's economy. Uh, while there were certain elements of that, it certainly uh, is not the full story. The full story is that Jiang Zemin represented the uh, growth of China into a power that could then address the contradictions that come with rapid development and growth, contradictions that you know countries like Cuba under U.S. sanctions, countries like Venezuela under sanctions, you know countries like Vietnam under sanctions all the way into the 1990s, and of course bombed into the Stone Age. So uh, you know it, it hasn't been until the last couple of decades where it's been really able to speed up growth. Uh, these countries really looked at China as a model for what it means to develop in this era of world politics and economics and, and geopolitics and uh, what it means to uh, also balance the interests of the economy, of development, and also of the people. And so uh, I think that's what uh, the death of Jiang Zemin really represented and why, why there was such an outcry of sadness about, about his passing, uh, contrary to uh, what a lot of Western observers would have hoped was that perhaps uh, people would look at Jiang Zemin as like this, oh, this like ghost of a pastime that was better back then. I don't think Chinese people look at it like that. It would be ridiculous to look at it like that because in the 1990s, China was at a much lower point of development, right? I, I think that there was just so much attempts to distort this in the West and it didn't really 
go very far. But the legacy still rings true that there is this development trajectory that does have continuity. Um, and and Jiang Zemin is just uh, one part of that and, and one very important one. Yeah, I'm curious what you think, Carlos. I, I personally see Jiang as as a figure where we can't understand what he did if we don't understand the historical context that he was president in, which is 1993 until 2003. We're talking about a moment of the peak of neoliberalism, the overthrow of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation under Boris Yeltsin has mass privatization. We see that socialist governments around the world are overthrown and China in a, in a world drowning in neoliberalism is forced to make a lot of these political and economic compromises in order to continue moving forward and developing its economy, but with the understanding that the ultimate goal is still socialism. So, you know, sometimes you have to take a few steps back and take a few steps forward. And it was um, President Zheng himself who, who coined the term market socialism. So I think um, he definitely, he's not one of these people that, that we can just like throw away as someone who is an insignificant leader. I think he he represented the tran transitory moment in which that China was going through. That was a very difficult period. I mean, you talked about the special period in Cuba and also in the DPRK and many countries when most large socialist governments were overthrown. These countries were put in a very difficult situation. And no one, I mean, if you ask people in Cuba today, many Cubans strongly support the revolution and they strongly support their government. They don't want to go back to this special period, right? So being able to not only live through that period, but be able to advance the productive forces, I think is, it's, it's a question that socialists in the future will have to grapple with and they'll have to study some of these examples. I'm, that's my personal view. I'm wondering what you think, Carlos, so then we can start wrapping up. Thanks, Ben. I mean, you guys have both made really important points um, that I wholeheartedly agree with. Uh, you know, one one side note, it's interesting that Jiang Zemin wasn't the only 96-year-old world figure to die this year. Britain's Queen Elizabeth also passed away and for some strange reason received significantly less coverage throughout the, the Western world uh, than Jiang Zemin did. Make of that what you will. You know, in as much as Jiang has been talked about, the coverage has been, dare I say, too simple and sometimes naive. Um, now, yeah, I, I, you guys have both referenced it. Zhang was, you know, to many people, a relatively controversial figure. Like he's most strongly associated of, of all the, the the heads of state in China. He's most strongly as associated with some of the more negative aspects of the whole uh, process of reform and opening up. Like in the time that he was at the helm, 1989 to 2003, inequality increased you know, massively. There's no, there's no sugarcoating that. And, and very controversially, capitalists were allowed to join the CPC for the first time, um, although they were, and they still remain a tiny minority of its members. There was an increase in corruption. There was an increase in bureaucratism and, and probably some level of ideological decay, uh, you know, as the focus really shifted to, to China getting richer, to increasing GDP, uh, as, as Danny mentioned, the, the wild 90s. On the other hand, you know, China did get a lot richer, experiencing really dramatic growth that was unprecedented, not just in Chinese terms, but in global terms. And, and that manifested itself in a better life for hundreds of millions of ordinary Chinese people. Yes, the rich got really, really rich, 
But the poor were also doing a lot better in 2003 than they were in 1989. Wages quadrupled in that time. Life expectancy and all the key social indicators improved. And, you know, this, this is not a small point, but the People's Republic of China survived. Socialism survived. Like, the period from 1989 to 91 was a disaster, a terrible setback for global socialism. But China, along with Cuba, the DPRK, Vietnam and Laos held the line like Jiang Zemin stuck to the, the four cardinal principles that were laid down by, by Deng Xiaoping in 1978 at the start of the reform process, which are uphold the socialist path, uphold the People's Democratic Dictatorship, uphold the leadership of the CPC, uphold Mao Zedong thought and Marxism-Leninism. You know, Jiang didn't follow this uh, Soviet-style path of Western liberalization and historic nihilism. Uh, you know, the imperialist countries would have loved nothing more than to see a color revolution in China. But Jiang safeguarded China's sovereignty, safeguarded China's security. And at the end of the day, he was a lifelong communist. He was involved in the liberation struggle since his student days. He was also, as you've referenced, um, Danny, very focused on developing friendship and solidarity with the socialist countries. In particular, the Cubans have noted that he was the only foreign leader to visit Cuba in 1993, at the height of the special period, an extremely difficult time for Cuba, when the US was basically just sitting back and waiting for Cuban socialism to collapse. China came to, to Cuba's aid. You know, there, there was a number of important agreements on trade and aid that were signed. One of them was that the Chinese provided a million bicycles to the people of Havana. Um, and on that trip, Fidel Castro awarded Jiang the Order of José Martí, which is Cuba's highest honor. And in his speech, kind of, you know, Fidel made it clear that he considered China's socialism to be a valid and important evolution and development of Marxism. And he negated the idea that China had gone over to capitalism. He famously said in that speech that only socialism can achieve what China has achieved, like to provide food, housing, clothing, education, healthcare, clean water, modern energy to a billion people in a country that used to be among the poorest in the world. Only socialism can do that. So, you know, in summary, when it comes to Jiang Zemin, I think my bottom line is rest in power. His legacy is that China continues to be a socialist country. And, you know, in many ways, due to, due to China's rise, socialism in this year, you know, 2022, is yet again on an upswing, is getting stronger globally, and is something that the people of the world aspire to. Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, I, it, you guys always have excellent analysis. I always enjoy these conversations. We covered a lot of ground today. Talked about the protests, the uh, relax, relaxation of zero COVID policies, uh, Xi's visit to the Persian Gulf, and the agreement signed in West Asia, um, the Cuban president Diaz-Canel's visit, um, the growing relations between China and Vietnam, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's visit, and the death of Zheng. That was everything that was on the list. And I, and I think hopefully people learned a lot. I certainly learned a lot listening to your analysis. For, um, you know, this is a, a joint stream that we're going to be doing um, pretty regularly. Maybe I shouldn't say every month because if we don't do it a month, people might get angry. But regularly, um, this is a joint stream between uh, Multipolarista, I'm Ben Norton, and also um, The Left Lens with Danny Haifong and Friends of Socialist China with Carlos. Um, just to conclude here, um, 
do you guys want to have, do you have any final thoughts and do you want to plug anything? I'm going to start with you, Danny. Sure. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, my final thoughts is on, on the Europe question. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about, as you, as Carlos was talking about Olaf Schultz's visit, uh, I, this coming winter, right? It's it's basically here, but it's it's going to accelerate pretty fast. And uh, with the way that the EU has behaved in relation to the proxy war in Ukraine that the U.S. is leading and waging to weaken Russia and to wage this uh, two-front war on Russia and China with Russia the target here, uh, it, it's just going to be so interesting. And, and I think hearing people like Macron, people like Schultz, Right, uh, try to assert this modicum of independence on policy around China is going to be a tension to watch out for because these European countries, the EU in particular, has so uh, has so much pressure on it to serve the United States fully and totally. We see that with Ukraine, but it also has been the case in a lot of ways with China. That's why China, in the lead up to this, you look at Chinese media. You heard China not only express excitement about meetings with Schultz and other EU leaders, but also expressing deep regret for how the EU has in a lot of ways. And then, of course, the UK no longer in the EU, but still a country in Europe, how all of these countries have in some form or another went along with this policy of trying to, quote unquote, decouple from China. And this whole notion of trying to decouple from China anywhere in the world, but especially for Europe now facing this massive energy crisis really does risk total economic collapse. And I think that is the reason, the big reason why Olaf Schultz and other EU leaders are trying to change their narrative a bit, because they know that if they isolate China, if they follow the US down that path, then the European Union is on the brink of collapse, economic collapse. And then comes the political collapse, because we know the political forces that are rising right now throughout the European Union. Some of them are left, but we know a lot of them are to the right. And so their anti-EU stance threatens to break up the alliance altogether. And, and that is very much a possibility if uh, the European Union does not play its cards right. And so this, uh, this economic suicide that it is committing is definitely something to watch out for because it will have huge implications for China. The whole reason, I mean, a huge reason, not the whole reason, but a huge reason why China has the Belt and Road Initiative and emphasizes multilateralism and multipolarity. Huge reason is because it is trying to build economic corridors through Asia into Europe. It's a huge market for China. China is a leading trading part, leading trade partner for most of these countries. And I think in Europe, and I think, you know, being able to connect deeper and further is so important to China. And so it'll be interesting to see how Europe responds and reacts as this crisis deepens uh, in that region over Ukraine. Yeah, good points. And Carlos, any, any final thoughts? Sure. I mean, as you said, we've we've covered a lot of ground. I guess you know, in terms of final thought, I would just want to say that you know, there's there's two pretty clear and very distinct trends that are emerging in global politics. On the one hand, you've got what China represents and is kind of at the core of and is leading, which is about common prosperity, and it's about sustainable development, and it's about high quality development, about multipolarity international law and the principles of the UN Charter, um, sovereign development, peace and cooperation. Um, on the other hand, you've got 
the project for a new American century. You've got the new Cold War, the pivot to Asia, um, the expansion of NATO, the, the expansion of AUKUS, the project of China encirclement and containment. Um, you've got the consolidation and expansion of hegemony, of imperialism, unilateral sanctions, coercive measures, regime change operations, destabilization, climate breakdown, war, you know, capitalist crises and decline. So I just think we need, you know, as a, as a progressive movement in the West, particularly, we need to be extremely clear about what side we're on, which of those two trends we support. You know, there's, there's a group, um, there's a, there's a group of people that consider this, this divide um, and the, this kind of rift between these two trends as being an example of inter-imperialist rivalry. And I think the facts show, and all of our analysis shows that that's deeply misguided. And we need to, um, you know, we need to really tear that notion down and, and encourage people to pick a side. Yeah, perfectly said. I think that's another great note to conclude on. So um, everyone watching this, uh, whether it's on, uh, you know, Danny's channel, The Left Lens, my channel, Multipolarista, or Friends of Socialist China, you should uh, subscribe to all of the channels because we, um, Danny and Carlos do a lot of great work. And I um, also do a lot of videos related to the topics we discussed today. So if you want to learn more about geopolitics, economics, socialism, imperialism, check out our work. And I, I guess with that said, um, we'll probably conclude. So thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Yeah, and I want to thank everyone who commented. There was a very lively discussion. I wish we could have had time to respond, but we're already at 90 minutes, and uh, there are literally uh, over a thousand comments. So <laughs> it's all impossible. Right, Great. Well, see see you all. See you. Take care. Bye -bye.